Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Joining me today is Dr. Annette Weber, a senior fellow to SWP, the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. She's also a senior advisor at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. She's on the show to talk about the worsening relationship between Ethiopia and Sudan and what that fallout means for the region. We also discuss how Europe is approaching these various crises. Annette, welcome to The Horn. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for inviting me. So, you know, we're here today to talk primarily about the deterioration in relations between Khartoum and Addis Ababa. It's an issue, you know, that we've talked a lot about on the podcast and obviously has far-reaching implications. And so uh, we just wanted to zero in a bit closer on this. So, so first of all, you know, on a, on a broad sense, why exactly have we seen this deterioration between Sudan and Ethiopia? Okay, let's let's go back two years. When the Sudanese revolution was successful, I think we all remember that basically uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was the one hailed by, by those who protested in the streets of Sudan when he came for the inauguration of, of the transitional government. So everybody thought and hoped that these two countries would work extremely well together because they were two countries in transition to democracy. But two things have changed since then, primarily the conflict in Tigray, the question on the GERD, and basically Ethiopia's foreign or regional policy. The conflict in Tigray, I think in the beginning, what we've seen, um, the you know, Sudan was very receptive of, of uh, the refugees coming in from, from Tigray. Prime Minister Hamdok was the first basically to reach out to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to find a solution and, and to mediate in this conflict. But Prime Minister Abiy didn't like this idea and he felt that there, you know, this is an interference in his uh, sovereignty. And I think this was maybe the beginning of more than a critical phase between Sudan and, and Ethiopia, because um, Sudan felt that they don't have the trust and the reach to the other side, not only on the prime minister's level, but also on the foreign minister's level. And I think, of course, the other huge and big um, problem between the two countries is the GERD, the Nile Dam that is constructed in, in Ethiopia or is filled in Ethiopia. And I think what we've seen there is a change in, let's say, the regional politics on the Ethiopian side from, from Melissenawi's time where basically it was clear Ethiopia is playing by its own and but being a regional hegemon trying to keep control over regional dynamics um, but trying also to have friendly relations to most countries. Um, that was changed first for the better with Abi. So, you know, the peace agreement with Eritrea uh, reaching out to, to the new government in Sudan. But then the fallout was pretty drastic. And I think this is where this kind of um, isolation that Abi was choosing, specifically on the GERD, where he felt, you know, it's his, it's a sovereign question. The Sudanese felt that they that they are basically turning away from the support for the Ethiopians on, on the GERD and turning towards the support for the Egyptians. Yeah, and we've discussed the GERD dam dispute a fair amount on this podcast. But of course, the other major concern is the border dispute over the Al-Fashaga area, you know, which has already led to armed clashes. So I think it's useful to zoom in on that, even if it is symptomatic of this broader fallout. So how does the Al-Fashaga border dispute look from the Sudanese side? And then we'll turn to the Ethiopian side next. I think from the Sudanese side, it's like it was clear that in in the last discussion they had with the, with the Ethiopians in 2008, that they basically 
agreed on a soft border, that they agreed on a soft border in terms of the, the territory is theirs, um, but the land use. So the land right is the Sudanese rights, but the land use, um, they left it to the to the Ethiopian farmers, but not only, you know, small scale farmers, but to the Ethiopian um, agricultural companies to to have their sesame farms in Al-Fashaka, in the, in the triangle. Um, so I think for the Sudanese, that was an, a deal that they have made. And it goes back, of course, you know, many years. They felt secure in the 1902 agreement. And then they also felt that, um, you know, in 95, when basically the, uh, the the problem with their listing of as a state support for terrorists started, that they could make a deal with the Ethiopian side. So basically the Sudanese felt they can trust the Ethiopians on that soft border and the soft deal without demarcation, but with an understanding of land use rather than land rights. You know, after the beginning of, of the war in Tigray, I would say the Sudanese also felt specifically after, uh, you know, the moves by Abdullah Hamdok were basically rebuffed in Addis, uh, the moves on, on mediating um, in, in that conflict were rebuffed by, by Addis. The Sudanese also felt basically that maybe they cannot trust the other side anymore. And um, after, you know, what happened with the GERD, that they need to ensure that Al-Fashaka is really there. So they were calling for demarcation and also they mobilized uh, their forces. And, you know, what we've seen on both sides, um, mobilization of the of the formal forces, but also mobilization of other groups. And, you know, it's basically formalized on the Ethiopian side, but we've also seen um, mobilization, for example, by the Miseria saying, you know, we, we're joining our brothers in the army um, to f- to fend for our country. Um, so you had a couple, you know, you had a, basically a, a bit of a rush to uh, a national cause. And I think this is what we've seen on Al-Fashaka from, from the Sudanese side. And now turning to the Ethiopia side, I mean, how, you know, how does Addis Ababa view the Fashaga dispute? And, and also, you know, might we see a different approach from Addis Ababa, both on Fashaga and maybe the GERD after elections. I'm just wondering how much, you know, electoral domestic politics might be driving some of Abiy's approach to these issues. Well, if we believe that politics in Ethiopia and the regional politics are driven by Abiy and by Addis, then I would totally agree Then we might see a different scene and different politics after the elections. But what we've seen, what we've seen in in Tigray, not only by you know inviting the Eritreans and becoming very dependent on the Eritrean uh, army for the military balance in Tigray, but also depending increasingly on the Amhara militias, um, then I'm not totally convinced that the politics of this region are really controlled in, uh, in in Addis. So I'm not so hopeful that the elections will bring a total different. Um, you know, domestic and and regional political situation, but that there that there will be a continuation of a very strong, expansive interest of of the Amharas. I cannot see them handing over, uh, you know, Western Tigray again. And I think you know their interest in the Al Fashaka uh, region specifically on large scale um, sesame agricultural schemes. I don't see them handing this back. And so therefore, I think um, one shouldn't hope for, you know, um, a a day X to to change things. But I think it's really important to engage in in de-escalation right now Um, and in ways of, you know, how land use 
and, and a soft border can be basically um, established and, and maybe guaranteed in, in that region. One more question related to to what you answered in the in the first question. Um, what what do you make of this very hard pivot of Khartoum towards Cairo, which of course does underlie uh, many of these uh, issues that we're talking about? I think it's uh, it's going to be problematic um, at the end. You know, when we look at the Horn of Africa region, it was for the last you know decades basically. Uh, it's a region that is very deceptive for external influence that is not necessarily in the interest of um, a strong regional identity or a strong regional stability. And I think this is where maybe Egypt's interest in in having Sudan on their side militarily with the, you know, with the military agreement signed, I think, in in March this year, um, but also on, on the GERD, it's basically Sudan is moving a bit to a bit away from from the Horn of Africa, and I think we've also seen that uh, you know there are many reasons why why Sudan Sudan as the chair of IGAD couldn't move more strongly. But of course, I think most of us had wished that Sudan as the chair of IGAD would make more of their regional position and would make more of a regional outreach and a regional agenda for, you know, strengthening the Horn of Africa. Um, and I think that's something so far, it's not there. And, and exactly why do you think Khartoum has seen it in its interest to to get much closer to Cairo? You know, despite, as you say, it, in some ways, it feels like Sudan sort of drifting from the Horn of Africa in doing so. Well, I think two reasons. One reason um, is definitely that they felt the good relations they had before with uh, with Ethiopia they are not holding. Um, that they couldn't trust the Ethiopians on on the GERD, specifically on the filling. That they felt you know potentially there is a weaponization of of the filling, um, and I think really it's it it is some somehow coming down to to the lack of channels of communication that they don't have you know the the other side picking up the phone when when they call and i think that was different before i think that's one one reason and the the other reason is um well, I think the strong pull um, and the interest by the military side of the transition in sudan to basically get closer to those whom they are more familiar to. And that is, of course, you know, the more authoritarian countries with a more uh, militarized politics, such as Egypt. So I'd like to turn quickly now to the Ethiopia-Eritrea alliance. You know, there's kind of a basic question about whether this alliance between Prime Minister Abiy and President Isaias that has been forged, whether this is, you know, very much tactical, focused very much on Tigray, or whether or not there is a broader strategic, you know, transformative uh, play here between these two that's going on. Um, of course, which side you fall on that has uh, pretty drastic implications. I think it's both. I think, um, you know, there is, it, it's not a secret. I mean, we've, we've, Known from Isaiah's from even before the war with um with with Ethiopia in in uh, ninety eight to two thousand even before then that there that he has that he had an interest um to basically have a stronger regional integration of the small horn um you know to basically make use of his 
or not his, but of the Eritrean um, ports and make use of the of the growing market and the you know and 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 Ethiopia basically being that uh, economic driver in in the Horn, one could say very positively right in the beginning after the independence of Eritrea, um, these discussions were held between Melis and and um, Isaias. That same strategy right now, you know, twenty years later or thirty years later, of course, is not the same strategy anymore because right. Now, um, we don't have the TPLF, we don't have the Tigrayans in, in power in Ethiopia anymore. And this strategy right now is becoming a strategy that is very closely connected to the tactical move of destabilizing Tigray to an extent where basically neither the TPLF nor the TDF or the infrastructure of Tigray um, would allow the Tigrayans to come back to basically uh, be in such a powerful position in Ethiopia that they have been before. So maybe I would, yeah, my answer is basically, I think it's both. And I think the, the strategy that might have had some, you know, positive um, positive impact a couple of years back is becoming a strategy that is based on um, destruction and and based on, well, you know, keeping a region very weak in order for other regions um, to 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 grow stronger. And I think this is a strategy that cannot take. I mean, of course, it can take hold, but it's not a positive strategy. And it's also a strategy right now that um, would basically put the the trilateral axis Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia. Um, against the the EGAT regional identity. And I think that, of course, should be of concern um, specifically to the Sudanese and the Shibushans and, and Kenya. So I think, um, you know, if it's if it's a strategy for uh, co better cooperation, then it should be a strategy discussed amongst the EGAT countries. But as you know, uh, Eritrea is not part of EGAT and there is no discussion also not between... Um, uh, Abi and and the Sudanese or the Kenyans or the Shibushans on these issues. So I think right now we see it much more as a tactical move to weaken um, the TPLF and the Tigrayans rather than a positive strategy of regional integration. Yeah, I mean, this sort of moves us a bit further afield than, than what I plan to get to. But I'm just wondering, since you mentioned that, I mean, how do you devise a strategy that also, you know, accommodates Eritrea as an actor to a degree? Because, of course, the previous status quo of sort of boxing in Eritrea and, you know, EGAD, and, and I want to get back to EGAD later, but maybe maybe that status quo isn't really practical um, in the current configuration. What would what, what would you say to that on a policy level? As much as I think um, it's on, on Abi to show right now what he sees as the future of uh, Ethiopia and the region, I think it's also on, on Isaiah Safworki um, to show right now what he sees as the future of his country and the region. So I think the strategy cannot just come from outside. I think these two actors have to show, you know, their population, their citizens, as well as the regional actors, what they really want to see. And I think after this, after one has an understanding, you know, are they serious about um, Eritrea moving out? Are they serious about ac accountability? I mean, you know, it's it's not going to go without accountability, what we've seen, uh, the, the human rights atrocities and abuses in, in the last couple of months um, in Tigray. As long, I think, as, as Eritrea is playing that role in Tigray, I don't see a support from outside. And I think, you know, long term, if they if the two sides would show that they have an interest that that is 
that is not based on destruction of Tigray. I think the, the, the potential of that region is quite big and significant. And then, of course, the potential of that region has to entail Eritrea. It's a it's, it's, um, geopolitically vital position on the Red Sea and, you know, between Sudan and, of course, and, 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 and Ethiopia. But I think the first step has to come from the leaders of that region. Great. And, and, and what you're painting is very much, you know, a, a region in which the chess pieces, so to speak, have been moved around quite a bit and sort of the fallout and implications and repercussions are sort of still being felt. I'm wondering, you know, when, when we look at the Sudan-Ethiopia uh, issue where we kind of started, obviously when you have a border conflict and there has been some clashes, the big fear of everyone is, you know, a, a war between two countries, uh, a war between Sudan and Ethiopia. What do you think is the risk of actual interstate conflict in this in this situation and, and, and do you think the risk might be more proxy conflict like we've seen, you know, historically all over the region, but also particularly this sort of uh, nexus between Sudan, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Eritrea? I think the risk is there. I think the risk is there for both. And I'm not quite sure if it's going back to, you know, an 80s concept of proxy. I think what we also see specifically by, um, you know, when we look at the Amhara militias, when we look at uh, the RSF in Sudan, when we look at a more warlord rule, a more militia rule or militia security structure rather than the, let's say, the the soldier presidents um, that we've seen with uh, Idris Debi or Melisenawi or that we still see, of course, with Isaiah Safworki. So I think there is much more of a fragmentation, not just of the countries themselves, but also of the security structures. And I think that is maybe a different um, threat to the region in terms of, you know, much more ethnically um, shaped militias uh, fighting for some very small causes, but fighting very, or recruiting very easily and, and mobilizing um, very easily. And I think that's something we, we need to look into. And I think given all these risks and given, you know, what we already see in Tigray, uh, a lot of mobilization, even of those who were absolutely opposed to the TPLF. There are a lot of young people joining the TDF um, who are, you know, from Tigrayan opposition parties who were not part of the T TPLF. And I think this is, that should already tell us that this is, you know, this is not going back to the 80s. It's not going back to the 90s. It's it's a new dimension that is, um, that is, that of course will potentially use old networks, support from, you know, sites in Sudan um, and, you know, the interconnection with Eritrea we've already talked about. Um, but I would think it's it's not going to be the same than what we've seen in that region before, but um, much more fragmented, much more uh, based on militias. Great. Now, I'm going to take us on a bit of a, a pivot here. You know, in, in the past, we've discussed uh, in podcasts, you know, sort of the U.S. approach to the Horn of Africa to, to the degree that that it exists. You know, you interact very closely and, and have for quite a while with EU and European officials. I'm just wondering, how does the Horn of Africa as a region look from a, you know, a European perch, strategically speaking? Is there ability to sort of look at the region holistically um, when, when, when sort of developing a strategy towards this uh, area? I think there's, you know, we, we 
we come a long way. And I think, yes, we, we see a huge change in the, in the last couple of years. I mean, it's not just um, the Horn of Africa strategies are becoming more and more regional, you know, not just connecting the countries, but having a regional understanding. Um, and by this, not just having a regional understanding in terms of supporting IGAD or supporting um, multilateralism in the region, but connecting the potentials and the challenges of the region. And, and by this, also connecting the potential potential solutions or support for for solutions. What I also think is what we've seen the last four years, you know, in basically a lot of an absence of, uh, of a US policy on, on the region, or maybe not an absence of policy, but activity on the region. I think we've seen a lead by the Europeans. You know, if we look at the support for Sudan, for example, the Friends of Sudan, the support for transitions to democracy in that region, you know, we, we do see a positive engagement on the region rather than just... Um, a reactive engagement than it was maybe the case uh, five years ago. Crisis in, in Europe started on on migration. And I think that is a very welcome change. What I'm hoping for is that this is, you know, now that the US seems to be engaging again, that this is not becoming a fallback option for the Europeans to just relax, but um, that there will be stronger transatlantic um policies on, you know, not just common messaging, as I think we've seen quite well on, on the, in the case of Ethiopia, but also much more of a common approach um, to support those, those um, transitions to democracy and to, to also support ways of, you know, um, de-escalating the conflicts in, in that region. Yeah, now, now taking um, a look at, uh, back again at the transatlantic relationship, which I think is quite interesting right now for the reasons you mentioned. You had the Trump administration, you know, kind of step back from this this region a fair amount. At the same time, the EU and Europe was sort of looking at it more strategically and, and, and sort of focusing on it more. And now you have the Biden administration coming in and once again, you know, taking the region, I'd say, more seriously. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, how you see this playing out moving forward. Does it need to be clear who is the lead when it comes to working together? And, and to what degree is there an ability to do, you know, joint action? No, I think it's absolutely not necessary uh, that one is taking the lead. And I think we have different things to offer. For example, the Europeans have to offer, a, you know, very long history of coalition building, of negotiated power, of, um, you know, overcoming, basically overcoming enmities and overcoming, well, serious regional issues, you know, the two world wars um, started by, by, by Germany, uh, and, and arriving at an understanding where basically you give up a bit of your sovereignty and you get more of a, of a regional uh, strength. And I think these are, you know, that's an experience and that's um, political knowledge that that we can offer to this region and that's very different to what um, what the US can offer so I think it would be and I, I, I see that happening already and I you know we've, we've talked about Ethiopia before I think that's where it was quite clear that the messaging coming from Brussels and the messaging coming from DC from Washington was very very clear and very similar so I think common joint messaging has already started and I, I've, I'm quite hopeful and, and optimistic that you know there could be a much stronger transatlantic approach um, to this region where the different experience and the different strength can be um, brought in. Um, but, and I don't think that there needs to be a lead um, by you know, the Euro Europeans or, or the US. 
Mm. And just uh, one more question on this European angle um, on the Horn of Africa, which is something you mentioned earlier, which is EGAD. Um, you know, and we've touched on EGAD a lot um, on, on various episodes. And of course, EGAD is a source of frustration, um, if not disappointment for many. And there's there, there's been a lot of changes in the region, specifically um, emanating out of Ethiopia that sort of um, undermined EGAD's effectiveness. I'm just wondering, you know, the, the EU is very much kind of the, the main backer of EGAD. Why is EGAD worth saving? I think EGAD is worth saving because it is basically the the instrument that that allows the region to cooperate and communicate um, beyond just bilateral engagements. And I think this is really extremely important to have that. Um, now, of course, the question is, is it used and um, who is using it? And, you know, of course, EGA can only be as strong as its member states. And I would encourage the member states absolutely to make much more use of EGA. And this is where I would see the Europeans uh, would not give up on EGA exactly because of their experience, you know, the ups and downs of the EU, of course. But but where the the idea of having a regional organization that could provide not only, you know, collective security, but also a a basis for collective um, decision making, for regional decision making, I think it's, uh, it's an, you know, it's an idea that needs to be that would need to be invented if it wouldn't be there already, but it needs to be used. You know, you sometimes hear EGAD referred to basically now almost as, you know, a dead man walking, you know, if basically the leaders in the region, as you say, are not really interested in in using the vessel. Is it a perspective that even if the region isn't interested in using it so much now, or just the configuration isn't very amenable to to it being used right now, that it's worth keeping around because in hopes that sort of uh, such a multilateral approach might come back in the future? Is that is that the sort of idea be- behind keeping EGAD standing? I think that's the idea behind it in terms of, of course, I think we all are still hopeful that the that the leaders of the region have not just decided to to take an authoritarian turn and um, and forgot about their, their regional capacities. Um, so yes, I think it's driven by hope, but I think it's also um, driven by the understanding that the fluidity of you know political elite and political leadership in the in the region is quite high. So you know there are there are huge dynamics. If you look at Ethiopia, if you look at Sudan, um, the elites of today were basically not known uh, and not there um, uh, ten years ago. And so I think this is where EGAD could play much more of a role of having these kind of channels of communication of providing that kind of um, that kind of vessel to well to, to come to to regional decisions um, yes I think we will see much more of, of maybe national interests first and that's not that's not unique to the EGAD region we see that worldwide but um I still would think that the EGAD region specifically was always you know they were not so bad on multilateralism if you look at the uh, the engagement of EGAD in, you know, in South Sudan right in the beginning. And we're not talking about the, the rest of the story, but there was an engagement of, of the EGAD heads of states and countries um, in, in 2013. So, I mean, the, the understanding that the region can only be as strong as its members, I think, was still and is still there. Um, and I think... To dismantle it right now and hope for the for the for the national heads of state to you know to come to an bilateral agreements that would reflect the need for the region, I would think is less good of an option than what we have with EGAD. 
you know, one final question to, to wrap this up, because um, we're out of time. Um, but this takes us back to where we started. Um, and, I, and I'm just wondering, you know, when we look at Sudan and Ethiopia, uh, we have a deterioration in the relationship. Um, and then you have specific sort of disputes, specifically, you know, this sort of simmering border conflict and, and GERD. I'm wondering where you start, like, where would you recommend outside actors and regional actors themselves sort of start in, in trying to prevent this and, and mitigate, you know, what, what what's already there and, and, and try to start to repair this relationship so at least it doesn't spin into, you know, more outright conflict? I mean, I think what, we, what we're looking at is, um, you know, are conflicts that are very closely connected, but I would say that are not looking for one solution that fits all. So what I'm trying to say is I think one needs to look at Alpha Shaka in connection to the GERD, in connection to, to Tigray, but it's not one solution f- at one time for all three of those. So I would say, yes, absolutely. It's, it's you know, it's, it's very fundamental where the AU is standing right now and where the AU is making use of their own mediators, of their own channels of communication. I think that is something that needs to be pushed and needs to be supported. Um, strongly, and you know, we ha- we have this with the with with the GERD, and I'm I'm hopeful that it can move further. But I think what is always needed in in mediation, in you know, trying to find solutions for for active conflicts, is you need to prepare those. You need to prepare by shuttle diplomacy. You need to prepare by building trust and connecting not only capitals but also border communities. So I think from track one to track two, everything is necessary right now. I think it needs trust building, you know, amongst the border communities. It needs trust building on on track one level. And I think this is where this is where the AU is fundamental and needs to be a strategic actor. The UN, the EU, uh, the, the US can can be of help. Um, and I think this is where what we see right now that needs to, you know, the, the active conflicts need to be de-escalated, but they need to be de-escalated in, in a context of um, connectivity of challenges um, without being being overwhelmed by the amount of uh, of conflicts that we see in the in the region right now. Thanks Anetta. I mean we almost every issue we talked about in this discussion could have um, had its entire own podcast. So so thank you thank you for being willing to to tackle such a, a wide range of, of issues in such a short time and and thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you Ellen. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. If you want to find out more about our work, you can follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group or visit our website at crisisgroup.org. I'm Alan Boswell. Our producers is Mae Francis, and tune in next time. <laughs>